This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, building futures close to home at campuses in Morgantown, Kaiser, and Beckley. Information at wvu.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. Welcome back to the legislature today. I'm Bob Brunner. Thanks for joining us for tonight's coverage of the 2023 legislative session. The Senate passed a bill Monday that would help creation of more charter schools in the state. Senate Bill 47 would create a stimulus fund for potential founders who otherwise would not have the means to open a charter school. And this bill would create the charter school stimulus fund. The purpose of the fund is to offer financial support to entities who wish to start a charter school. Funding would come from legislative appropriation, grants, gifts, donations, and interest. The bill also provides for rulemaking to the Professional Charter School Board to develop an application, notification procedures, and attestation regarding the inability of the applicant to start the school without financial assistance from the fund. The bill also provides an initial grant of $300,000 in the first two years of operation and an additional grant of $100,000 after receiving that initial part of the grant. There are provisions for repayment if the school is not operational within 30 months. The bill does not provide for a direct revenue source yet. It would uh, require an appropriation to do that. Mr. President, I urge passage of the bill. Senator Mike Caputo, a Democrat from Marion County, was the sole vote against the charter school stimulus fund. The bill now goes to the House of Delegates for its consideration. Monday was library day at the legislature. As Chris Scholes reports, the day was a celebration of public libraries throughout the state, but also an opportunity to request funding. Libraries are best known for their books, but in recent years, they've slowly expanded their offerings to include everything from board games to power tools. They can also be a gathering place for communities. Erica Connolly is the library director for the Kanawha County Public Library System. She says that during the COVID-19 pandemic, libraries became even more critical for community connection. You know, libraries became very, very important um, during COVID to connect people um, with internet, with Wi-Fi hotspots. Uh, we got creative to get information to our communities with take-it-home crafts and online story time. So, you know, these are our goals is to continue those great services to our communities. According to Connolly, West Virginia ranks among the lowest states in terms of funding for public libraries, and state aid hasn't increased in more than a decade. We have a line item in the budget. It's been zero for several years. It's $5 million for capital improvements, deferred maintenance. We're in a lot of old buildings in our communities and in our towns. Uh, we're also looking for two, $2 million in supplemental funds. Uh, so, you know, West Virginia lost a lot of population. As a result, a lot of counties lost library funding. Um, so we're looking to replace that with $2 million. Connolly said West Virginians value their freedom to read and express themselves, 
and libraries continue to stand for that First Amendment right. For the legislature today, I'm Chris Schultz. Changes may be coming to the Office of Drug Control Policy if a House bill passes the legislature. Randy Yowie has that story. House Bill 3306 would take the office away from the Department of Health and Human Resources and gives it new responsibilities. The measure charges the office with developing a strategic plan to reduce the prevalence of drug and alcohol abuse and smoking by at least 10 percent, but it doesn't set a deadline. The proposal also creates a sober living home task force. According to several mayors and county commissioners, there's an influx of substance use disorder treatment and rehabilitation homes around the state that have prompted a number of related bills and studies. Delegate Scott Heckard, a Republican from Wood County, believes the task force will aid in controlling and decreasing what he says are a growing number of non-certified, unregulated sober living homes more focused on making a profit than helping people. There's no, it's like Dodge City, they do what they want to do. Approving this for a task force to study them will help weed out the bad ones. The bill passed by a vote of 90 to 4 and now goes to the Senate for consideration. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yoey. Members of the West Virginians for Life group rallied in the Capitol Rotunda today, making their case for legislative action involving crisis pregnancy. Randy Yoey has that story. West Virginians for Life say their first mission is to protect the reversal of Roe versus Wade and the state's anti-abortion legislation passed last summer. They say the second part of their mission is to undo what they claim is the damage caused by a half century of abortion by demand. To that end, the group supports House Bill 2002 that funds a network of mothers and babies crisis pregnancy help centers. The president of West Virginians for Life, Wanda Franz, says the organizations around the state working to help mothers when they want to give birth are burdened because they are basing almost everything on donations, making it difficult for them to operate. So this bill would provide a million dollars that would be set aside for a grant grant proposals and those grants could be requested from any of the uh, pro-life organizations in the state that uh, have a need and uh, that money could then flow to help them. And indeed, um, we understand that uh, some, a little bit of research was done and last year $60,000 worth of services was provided by our uh, approximately 30 uh, pregnancy resource centers around the state, so they are indeed fulfilling a need. Only pro-life organizations who do not commit or refer for abortions may qualify to receive this funding. The bill has passed the House and is now in the Senate Health and Human Resources Committee. For the Legislature Today, I'm Randy Yowie. The House of Delegates also announced that they will have a public hearing Wednesday morning at 9 a.m on Senate Bill 10 called the Campus Self-Defense Act, or more commonly known as the Campus Carry Bill. Registration to speak begins at 8.30 a.m. The Senate voted unanimously Monday to encourage Mon Power to purchase a power plant in northern West Virginia to save it from closing. Curtis Tate has more on what that might mean for taxpayers. The Pleasance Power Station has been making electricity from coal for 44 years. But the plant, which employs about 150 workers, is scheduled to shut down at the end of May. 
State lawmakers moved Monday to save those jobs by adopting a resolution to strongly encourage First Energy subsidiary Mon Power to purchase the Pleasance plant. Senator Donna Boley, a Pleasance County Republican, sponsored the resolution. The job losses created by such a closure stands to rip the social fabric that binds our community together. I urge you today to join me and vote for the passage of this resolution to support the call for Mon Power to purchase Pleasant's power station and preserve the jobs and tax base that provides for so many throughout the state of West Virginia. Bowley had the support of the chamber's few Democrats. Senator Mike Caputo of Marion County described the impact of a power plant closure in his district. Caputo said power plants support other jobs in the community. It's more than just a, a few jobs to operate the, uh, the facility. It's the ancillary jobs that count too, and that, that could come up into the hundreds, maybe a thousand, uh, with the loss of that plant. So I hope First Energy slash Monpower uh, decides to purchase this. The Pleasance plant burns millions of tons of West Virginia coal each year. It provides tax revenue that supports local government services. But owner Energy Harbor decided to close it because it was no longer economical to operate. And should Monpower decide to purchase the plant, it will pass along that cost to ratepayers. Monpower customers' rates already went up on January 1st. Still, no senators opposed Boley's resolution. 33 yeas, zero nays, one absent not voting. More than a majority of those elected and voting, I declare the resolution adopted. The West Virginia Public Service Commission gave Monpower until March 31st to evaluate the feasibility of acquiring the Pleasance plant. For the Legislature Today, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. Every 10 years, the legislature is tasked with completing a judicial redistricting proposal. 2023 is one of those years. The goal is to ensure the state's civil courts are not clogged and criminal courts are working efficiently. Randy Owey speaks with the West Virginia Supreme Court's Chief Justice on how the process is working. West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals Chief Justice Beth Walker says an independent agency, the National Center for State Courts, did a 2022 study assessing the workload of West Virginia circuit judges, family court judges, and magistrates. Walker says it's vital to ensure that there are sufficient judges to keep the cases moving, to make sure that people are getting heard, that folks have access to the courts, and that they get their matters resolved on a timely basis. Each of the judges kept literally a timesheet of all of their tasks for five weeks. And we use case numbers and that information, and we try to approximate how much work is being done in every single circuit. And that way we can take a look at across the state, whether we need more judges, um, have enough judges, or whatever the statistics show out. And ultimately we're trying to make sure that we have enough judges to do the work that needs to be done so that West Virginians' cases, whatever they are in court, are handled on a timely and efficient basis. To get a better understanding of the judicial redistricting process, Randy speaks with Senator Charles Trump and Delegate Moore Capito, the chairman of the Judiciary Committees in both chambers. Thank you, Bob. We have our House and our Senate Judiciary Committee chairs, uh, Delegate Moore Capito, Senator Charles Trump. Gentlemen, thanks for being here today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, let's start out with just defining the basic duties and mission of the, judici <laughs> the Judiciary Committee. As a gatekeeper, I know that. Uh, so finance handles the funding side. Uh, judiciary does what? 
everything else. <laughs> that's what, I, that's I, what we said. I think that's a fair answer. Uh, the Judiciary Committees of both houses have fairly broad jurisdiction and field a variety of bill, bills addressing uh, a, a, an enormous variety of subjects. Uh, is there a mission, per se? You know, I had a former judiciary chairman come up to me, actually, from the House from a while back, uh, I think at least maybe 10, 15 years or so, something like that, at least, and they said, don't let them take your jurisdiction from you. <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, so it, it depends how broadly you want to categorize it. Typically, anytime something has an impact on uh, a legal right, cert certainly, of a citizen or of a business, uh, we'll generally take a look at it. I mean, there's obviously when it comes to sort of licensing and government organizations, you've got that side, and then uh, budgetary matters and appropriations, typically, um, we see some of those, but finance generally, you'll see them after we do. Well, one thing that we're dealing with in 2023 is judicial redistricting. And I'd said earlier it was 10 years, but I find out it's every eight years, that second cycle. So I'll correct that right there because I had said 10 years earlier. But what were some of the noteworthy highlights of the redistricting committee study? Uh, Delegate Capito, you start Sure. With I think when we went into this, we realized that we probably in the past hadn't paid enough attention to our courts and how they were appropriated from a from a judicial standpoint. Um, obviously, I think that was all brought a little bit to light when we handled redistricting for our various houses when we, uh, you know, drew new lines and especially in the uh, in the house where we, for the first time, came up with uh, 100 single member districts. So uh, we really felt that it was important to take a uh, an objective view on caseload, and so we asked for participation from uh, the judicial department, as I still call them, right. but uh, the judicial branch to be involved in that because I think more collaboration is obviously better. But we also know that uh, they can't really do anything without legislative action. So I think we took a collaborative approach. We engaged uh, the National Center for uh, on, on, on State Courts to to uh, to advise on on a caseload study, and we're taking a close look at it. And it's the caseload study. What we're dealing with here are three divisions: the circuit courts, the family courts, and the magistrates. Let's start with circuit. And we know this is a historic term. You look at see the old westerns, and it was the circuit judge that would get on his horse or mule and go from circuit to circuit. And that's where the definition comes, if I'm not mistaken. But is there a minimum number of judges ruled per circuit? In the Constitution, no. And we have uh, several uh, single-judge circuits in the state right now. Uh, the bill that we're working on, at least in the Senate, will, uh, based on the data we got from the National Center for State Courts, uh, reduce that number of single-judge circuits. But, Randy, your, uh, your explanation is apt and, and right on. We still have circuits in this state where there's one judge and he or she rides the circuit and travels from county to county to hold court. I know, I was looking at the map and there are some that are three or four counties that would make up a circuit, but isn't there a requirement or a request for two judges at least per circuit? At least in the bill we've worked on in the Senate, we've tried to do that uh, because there are problems that arise when you have a single judge circuit. And I don't want to go too far in the weeds on it, but if you have a judge who's ill, there's no one else there to, to help uh, handle the cases, and the Supreme Court has to find a senior status judge or send another judge in. At least with, uh, if you have at least two judges in the circuit, 
then management of cases becomes easier and doesn't necessarily require the involvement of the Supreme Court. And Delegate Capital, that's what it's about, managing cases and making sure that the whole system works smoothly. I know that um, I've heard the Chief Justice Walker and as well as a Judge Anita Ashley, who talked to your committee last week, talked about the incredible excess of abuse and neglect cases. Is that statewide and, and does that have come into play with redistricting? I mean, I think all of these things were taken into case or into consideration when the study on, on caseload was performed by uh, the institution which we uh, brought forward to, to help with this process. Uh, I think the number one thing that we can do is ensure that we're sort of alleviating any of, of bottlenecks, alleviating any bottlenecks or clogging that we have in this system. And obviously, we know that some of that's occurring because we're understaffed yeah. and we don't have enough judges uh, around to sort of hear the cases as quickly as they should. And ultimately, I mean, we, when we think about it being sort of stewards of, 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 of all of West Virginia, I mean, that really starts to add up. I mean, the longer that people are waiting here, it drives up costs there. Uh, you have judges sitting here that could be doing work there. So, I mean, it's a, it's a really comprehensive look, and um, I think we're, we're making progress. I would just only add to, to what the chairman said. You know, there was, a, I think, an initial desire to have a certain amount of judges maybe per district, but it is important to listen to the, the folks that are on the ground. Uh, and the judges that are uh, that are on the ground, and from a you know not only from a procedural standpoint, but from a practicality standpoint as well. And we're trying to meet those objectives uh, at the same time. When you're talking about on the ground, the boots on the ground guys are the magistrates. I mean, those are the guys that have to work 24/7, uh, weekends and holidays, two in the morning. You know, I, I've been to a few of those, and I'm sure you guys have too. Um, how do you ensure there's enough of those magistrates to keep the whole system moving? Uh, it's a great question. We have uh, some very small counties in the state. Every county, no matter how small, has at least two magistrates under our current law. The bill we're working on in the Senate preserves that. Um, and it will add magistrates in 11 different counties of the state where we need them, according to the data, uh, to manage the caseloads that they confront. So this is Senate Bill 482. Uh, wh where does it stand now and then when will it head to the House? It was reported uh, by our Judiciary Committee last week. Uh, the bill has a second reference in the Senate to the Committee on Finance. So it's now in the possession of the Finance Committee. And if it's uh, reported uh, favorably from our Finance Committee, it will come to the floor and be in a posture where it can be considered for passage and then uh, consideration by the House of Delaware. Uh, which will probably go to your committee right off the bat. I would assume so. You've just hit on a perfect example of where we'll have both of those committees involved. So there we go. We <laughs> solved it all in one day. Thank you very much. Um, well, beyond the numbers, I mean, judges are people as well. And you and I talked about this a little bit before. Do you measure possibly overwork circuit judges, you know, that, with huge caseloads? I'm not, not even sure what a caseload average is. Or there, have you heard about any underwork judges? I've heard some stories of multi-year judges that might come in at noon and their staff covers for them. Uh, anything go on like that? It, all of it is analyzed. And that was really the uh, fundamental uh, purpose of the caseload uh, studies uh, not all cases are equal. You mentioned abuse and neglect cases earlier. Uh, 
One of the things that we learned in the studies, which I think Chairman Capito and I both knew, those cases take extraordinary amounts of time compared to other cases for the circuit courts. And uh, so now we, we did, at least as the bill left the Senate Judiciary Committee, it, it did reduce uh, judges uh, by one in one area. Right now, uh, under current law, McDowell County has two circuit judges. Wyoming County has one. Our bill would collapse those two counties into a single circuit with two judges. And, uh, you know, we all uh, know uh, with great sadness what uh, has happened in McDowell County and some of those places over the course of a generation or two. And the caseload is not what it once was. Uh, so. But in other places, we're adding judges where because of growth or change in the caseloads, the, the judiciary needs them. I'm guessing across the board for the state of West Virginia, the caseload is heavy. I mean, it, 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 it seems that it must be. Um, probably not too many places where it would be light. Delegate Capital, what you'll do is take this study as a recommendation. It is not a final stamp. No, again, this is purely the discretion, actually, of the legislature. Uh, I think we felt that it was important to have a collaborative approach. I think that we felt that the best product ultimately was going to be uh, something that, you know, the again, the judicial, the judicial branch, the legislative branch come together, have an objective study done on what what the caseload really is. And what we found is, I mean. You know, because this was typically the argument, especially when we went into uh, magistrates last year, was that, uh, you know, population does not always correlate to caseload, hmm. especially given the interesting sort of shape of West Virginia and the number of our border counties, uh, the number of interstates that tra tra traverse the state. Uh, so it's been a real learning process, but I think we're getting um, pretty close. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about felonies. Um, where at least four new ones I can see that the legislature is proposing right now. The Cassie Johnson bill, for example, obstructing an officer resulting in death, which pertains to all first responders and more, if I read it right. Is this the average number of, of felonies that are legislatively produced for a year or a session? I don't know if you can uh, declare an average uh, session by session or year by year. And, and the truth is, Randy, uh, you know, when, whenever a new legislature convenes, it comes with its own set of priorities. And, uh, yes. you know, there seems to be an emphasis this, this year on uh, public safety and crimes uh, that maybe is uh, elevated a little bit from previous legislatures. Uh, we've, we've considered a number of bills, as, as you point out in the Senate already, that would define new felony, uh, felonies. Uh, maybe a little higher than in previous years or sessions. Your thoughts? Sure. We've, we've considered a few this year. Uh, generally speaking, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think most of the, any sort of added felonies relate to child abuse, uh, sex trafficking, right. those areas that are becoming increasingly a problem in the state of West Virginia. Uh, the last thing that we want is sort of recidivist activity in those areas. Uh, so I think when you see strengthening, that's, those are most of the places, at least, that have come across um, 
our committee so far. And what we see basically, I think, with, with these felonies, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that we're fine-tuning what we already see in law and code. We understand the basics of, of what a crime is, but as you say, we're finding out what's coming to West Virginia more, what's happening in society more, and we're addressing that fine-tuning. Am I, am I right? I think that's a fair statement. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, the Senate Judiciary Committee has been considering recently and reporting to the floor a bill that deals with human smuggling. And, uh, you know, I, I've been around the legislature for a long time. That was not an issue that anyone ever talked to me about, you know, five years ago or 25 years ago. Uh, but it is something that has caused alarm and concern within our law enforcement community uh, now that we don't have perhaps adequate tools to address that problem. So that's what the legislature does. We, we, we try to address the problems that the people identify uh, for us to address to make this, you know, the place for people to live and work that we hope it will be. Um, we got about a minute left. With our prison overpopulation, does the judiciary have a role in, in corrections and diverting away from incarceration? Is there anything in, in that regard? Sort of, or you mean criminal justice reform? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, we've got sure, a lot I mean, of people that are lingering, lingering in pretrial. Uh, you know, um, the correction system goes along with the judicial system, but I don't know if that's your bailiwick. You know, we, we've made, I believe, pretty serious strides in the past few years about how we are providing treatment, and when I mean treatment, uh, transitional services for folks that have served their time, give them an opportunity to become involved in uh, community corrections programs so that, so that when they are fully integrated back into society, that they're able to cope with that transition. Um. I would, I, I, we're I, out of time. I'm sorry. Uh, we can continue this later because it's been a great discussion. Uh, Senator Trump, Delegate Capito, thanks for being here today. We appreciate it. Bob, I'll send it back to you. Thanks for that, Randy. Tune in to the legislature today, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. We'll have more news and interviews from the 2023 legislative session. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting is covering the session daily in our radio news program, West Virginia Morning, and on our news site at wvpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and Senate on the West Virginia channel, and we stream those on YouTube as well. I'm Bob Brunner. Thanks for joining us. Have a great evening. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, building futures close to home at campuses in Morgantown, Kaiser, and Beckley. Information at wvu.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com.